Now, get your Bibles out. We're going to be looking at Ephesians 1. We started this sermon series last week, and uh, we, uh, we took this one portion of Scripture, which is, which is about 11 verses. And, and I told you that in Greek, if you, if you take your New Testament in Greek, it's going to be all one sentence. There's no, no breaks. It's just all one sentence. And it's a very long sentence, very complex sentence. So the question is why, when Paul is writing, he's not taking any pauses and any, any breaks. Well, because he's so excited to tell us about the gospel. The reason for Paul going on and on about this great gospel is that he really believes it. And he rejoices in what God has done for his people. And so the sentence serves for us as a, as a sort of a, a primer on gospel grammar. It helps us understand what the gospel is, what this great work of God is about. And it gives us components, ingredients of the gospel. Now if you ask many people, what is the gospel? They're probably going to get a lot of different answers. But this is our definition. It's complex, sure, yeah. And it gives, it's long, yes. But we're going to pull out different components and each week talk about various aspects of this gospel. Listen to what John Stott, he was a pastor in London, passed away, I think last year, a popular writer. He said this about this passage, about this sentence. He says, a gateway, a golden chain, a kaleidoscope, a snowball, a racehorse, an operatic overture, and the flight of an eagle. All these metaphors in their different ways, describe the impression of color, movement, and grandeur which the sentence makes on the reader's mind. This is a special place, and I want you to feel just how saturated it is with the gospel of God's grace. So let's read the sentence again. I'll read the whole thing, and then we'll focus on one particular verse uh, within that. So Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he has set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Complex sentence, isn't it? But even if you don't know all those concepts, don't you see similar things coming up and up again? Glory, right? Praise, grace, God's choosing or predestining us. Those are important things. So let's try to focus on one of those, one of the essential components of the gospel, 
and uh, work through it. Now let me say right up front, this is a controversial topic. Charles Spurgeon said that, that a good sermon is always controversial. Well, I think you're going to get, if not a good, but a controversial sermon today. So I'd like you to wrestle with this issue. And the issue is of God's choice of individuals for salvation. This passage, and specifically verse 4, talks about God choosing us in Him, meaning in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Now, if you read just the face value of the text, there's God who chooses people for a purpose. Now, the other side of it would be that God doesn't choose other people for the same purpose. Because Paul is talking to the church. He's talking to the believers and he says, God chose you. Later on in the passage, it talks about God predestining us. Predestination, election, choice. Those are the concepts we, we come to in this sentence. And in fact, I think it is a great part of the gospel itself. All these blessings, forgiveness, redemption, inheritance in heaven, the sealing of the Holy Spirit, all the things that we're going to talk about in the last few weeks are reserved for those who were chosen by God from eternity to enjoy these blessings. Now listen to B.B. Warfield. He's a theologian of late 1800s in Princeton. He says this, All this accumulation of blessings has come to them only in fulfillment of an eternal purpose only because they had been chosen by God out of the mass of sinful men in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before Him and had been lovingly predestinated unto adoption through Jesus Christ to Him in accordance with the good pleasure of His will to the praise of the glory of His grace. Now, controversial topic, yes. Do Christians argue about it? Absolutely. Is there mystery involved in this? Certainly there's mystery involved in this. But it's in the text. And Paul puts it right in his explanation of the gospel. And Paul says, this is important. To understand God's election is important in understanding of the gospel and living the Christian life. So let's talk about it today. God unconditionally and specifically choosing some to be saved, to be blessed in Him. Now, as I think about it, and I have certainly wrestled with this issue myself, I think of three objections, or three questions that it is likely that you have as well as you're listening to me right now that need to be addressed if we are to ever figure out this issue. One, is it true? Does the Bible teach that God, in fact, purposes that some would be saved and some wouldn't? He chooses some unconditionally. Second objection, does it, does it fit in the gospel? If you believe in the gospel of grace, that God saves us by grace, does this idea of unconditional election fit in the gospel logic? Very important question. And lastly, is there practical importance to this doctrine? Now, there are many pastors, and, uh, and I've heard people talk about it, saying, don't preach on... Romans 9, don't preach on God's election. Why? Because it's just confusing. You know, people are going to argue about it. They're going to have all these questions, you know. And, and so you're just going to put them in some sort of metaphysical realm, which, as you know, I do often with you. But 
you, you put them in this, this weird abstract realm and it has no practical importance to them. So don't even bring it up. It's just something that theologians argue about. I, I have to say, I vehemently disagree with this. Because one, it's in Scripture. And anytime you come to a passage in Scripture that talks about something, you need to preach on it, you need to understand it, you need to figure it out. And two, I think it has tremendous practical importance for you. And let me just say that if you understand this doctrine today, if it's new to you, if you're able to understand it, and if you're able to apply it to your life, it will absolutely change how you live. It will affect your worship, your relationship with Christ. It will affect your friendship, how you treat others around you. And it will affect your mission, what you hope to do to serve others. So we'll get to that. So biblical basis, is it true? Gospel logic, does it fit with the gospel? And lastly, practical importance. So biblical basis. This, I'm going to spend most of my time there. Because if you're a believer, that's your main question. Does the Bible teach that God elects some for salvation? Instead of giving you a bunch of verses and just proof text in my position, I'm going to, read, I'm going to walk you through the story of the Bible. Briefly, I can't tell you about everything, but I'm going to walk you through the story of the Bible and show you how God specifically and unconditionally chooses people to be blessed and to be saved and used by Him. So, okay, ready? Let's start. Creation, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. God creates people. Now, notice that when God makes people, Adam and Eve, he doesn't just make generic people. It's not just this idea of humanity that, that develops into specific individuals. Oh, no. God makes specific people. God makes Adam, the way Adam was. Specific personality, character traits, ambitions. God makes him that way. And then God turns around he makes Eve. God wanted Eve to be Eve, not to be a generic idea of a woman. No, God wanted Eve, and he made her a certain way. So already from the start, you hopefully already see that God is doing specific things, that he is choosing who to create. He's not just starting this process of creation and waiting for it to develop and is surprised how it's going to develop. No. God creates specific individuals just as he does with us today. All right, Genesis 12, same book. Humanity sinned, they walked away from God, and God goes to Abraham. And he says to Abraham, I'm going to choose you, and through you I will build a great nation. And through you, blessings are going to come to the rest of creation. He chooses him, not his nephew Lot, if you read the story, although Lot benefits from that promise to Abraham, but Lot isn't chosen. Terah, Abraham's dad, is not chosen. But Abraham is chosen. Now, was there something special about Abraham? Especially sinful, perhaps? Especially proud? Especially morally corrupt? Yes. If you read the story of Abraham, you can't walk away thinking he was a special, virtuous person that has tremendous faith that made God look down and say, this is the man I want. No. Abraham is not ready to be the father of the nation. He's not ready to bless the world. He can barely take care of himself. And yet God chooses him. Unconditionally, specifically, chooses Abraham. Now, Genesis 25. Jacob and Esau. You remember that story? Rebecca, who's Abraham's daughter-in-law, she gives birth to twins. Esau and Jacob. Esau comes out first. So by culture, by law, Esau was supposed to inherit everything that Abraham and his father Isaac had. 
including the promises that God made to them. And yet, God says, no, the younger will rule the older. The older will serve the younger. God says, I'm going to choose Jacob, the younger brother. And through him, the covenant promises to Abraham are going to be fulfilled. Unconditional. Is Jacob better than Esau? No. Not according to the story you read later. Jacob was a trickster, the deceiver, the thief. He's a coward. And yet God says, I'm going to pick you, and through you my promises are going to be fulfilled. Paul, commenting, commenting on this text in Romans 9, says, When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, so they're the same, coming from the same mom, the same dad, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, God calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Unconditional, specific choice of God. Before they could do anything, good or bad, one of them was chosen to continue in the promises of God. All right, Exodus 3, Moses. Israel uh, is enslaved in Egypt and God calls Moses. What's Moses doing when God calls him at the burning bush? He's in the desert. Why? Does he like warm climate? No. He's hiding. He's on the run. He's a fugitive. He killed an Egyptian when he tried to become the leader of his people, Israel. And so he had to run. He had to flee. So he goes in the desert. He finds a wife and, and passed, and, you know, uh, past, I say pastors, but that's the right term, right? He shepherds, I guess. He shepherds the sheep. I pastor the sheep. He shepherds. But. So, so he, he's hiding. For 40 years he's hiding. And God comes to him, and out of the burning bush, God says, you are going to lead my people Israel out of Egypt. That surprises even Moses. Is it a good choice? Not according to what you know about Moses. He already had his chance and he blew it. And he's running away. And God says, no, I'm going to choose you, specifically, unconditionally, by grace, and you will be my leader. Now, hopefully, you're starting to pick up on a pattern in Scripture. God comes to specific individuals who don't deserve to be chosen, and God chooses them for his purposes. So Moses leads his people out of Egypt, and God says this in Deuteronomy 7 about his people Israel, why he chose Israel as a nation to bless them. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Do you see God's election here? He says, I'm going to take this group of people, not because they're better than other peoples, other nations, but because I love them. This, this is very important. There's a consistency to God's dealing with people 
And every time, he deals with people by grace, giving something they don't deserve, blessing them beyond what they expect, choosing unconditionally and specifically who he's going to bless and use. All right, now Israel is in the land. They acquired this wonderful land from God, and now they need a king. First king is King Saul, who's chosen by the people, and God rejects him. And God chooses another king, David. It's 1 Samuel 15, if you're following in Scripture. David, the youngest of Jesse's sons. Now, Jesse has seven sons. I have no sons, coincidentally, but Jesse has seven. It looks unfair, but Jesse has seven sons. And God says, through Samuel, he says, I'm going to choose one of those sons to be my king for Israel. Samuel goes and, and, and he looks at every one of the sons, starting with the oldest, because that makes sense that God would choose the oldest, right? And God rejects every one of them until Samuel says, don't you have another kid? And Jesse says, yeah, but he's, you know, he's with the sheep. So they call David, the youngest of Jesse's sons, and God says, Samuel, anoint this one. This is my king. Passing not just King Saul, but the six other sons of Jesse. So David becomes God's chosen king. Again, something special about David? Well, read his story. There's some bad things in his life. And yet, by grace, God chooses him. Now, my last passage from the Old Testament. Uh, I just want to make sure I make this case from Scripture, that you don't just take it as something I, I have thought of. In the, in the book of Jeremiah, this is years later, centuries later after David, Judah is about to be conquered by Babylon. And God raises a prophet, Jeremiah. And this is what he says to Jeremiah, chapter 1, verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you, or put you aside, set you apart. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. There is a deliberate choice of Jeremiah before he's even formed in the womb. Before Jeremiah exists, God says, I knew you. And I'm going to make you a prophet to the nation. Amazing. How can there be something in Jeremiah that made God choose him before he was born, before he existed? And God says, I knew you. God had designs for him. God had purposes for him. And he used him and blessed him. I hope you're getting, getting the gist of God's way of working in the Old Testament. There are many other kings and prophets we can turn to, but I trust that it's becoming clear to you that God regularly and consistently choosing certain people in the Old Testament, and His choice is not based on any of their distinguishing qualities or their accomplishments. God chooses because He loves. He sets His love on specific people and He chooses them. And then He uses them and blesses them. Now, let's go to the New Testament. Maybe... Many of you, the Old Testament, weird book, lots of stuff I don't understand. Okay, New Testament, maybe closer to home. Consider the disciples of Jesus. How does anyone become a disciple of Jesus in the Gospels in the New Testament? Jesus chooses them. Mark 1, verse 16 and 17. Jesus sees Simon and Andrew, sees them fishing, and he says, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. 
Did he choose them because they were most qualified to be his disciples? No, they're fishermen. They knew about fish, they didn't know about people. And yet he says, I'm going to make you into something different. And he chooses them and they follow him. How about the twelve apostles? Mark 3 says, Jesus went up to the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. This is interesting that Jesus chooses those whom he desires to be apostles, to be the twelve people who were going to leave the church, spread the gospel all over the Roman world, and establish this, this great Christian movement. He chooses them, those that he desires, he chooses them and calls them. Not that there's an application process. Jesus is not looking and saying, okay, the first round of interviews, let's see who best qualifies for this job. No, it's not like that. Can you imagine if it was like that? Can you imagine any of the apostles making it through the first round of the interviews? Can you imagine Peter? Peter comes and says, I'm really into this Christian thing. Would love to be the boss of the church. Would really like that. One problem, I have no control over my emotions. It's not at all. I get angry, I jump out of boats, I, I, I will probably betray you if, if a teenage girl by the fire tells me to. That's Peter. And, and Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church. That through these people, through this community, in which Peter is a leader, a church is going to spring up and is going to conquer the world. Amazing. What about you know, James and John, the Zebedee brothers? All they're concerned about is who's going to be at the right hand and who's going to be at the left hand. Not concerned about anybody else. Their mom, you remember those? You've got to read the Gospels, I think, with a little bit of a sense of humor because you have mom, you know, Mrs. Zebedee. She, she comes and says, okay, Jesus, really important question. I have two sons. We need to figure out right now who's at the right hand and who's at the left hand in your kingdom. No pressure. I just need to know who's more important out of my two children ambitious, petty people, right? But that's not how, how Jesus chose his, his apostles. He chose whom he desired, unconditionally, specifically picking people to be in charge of the church. If you look at Jesus' ministry in general, he calls many, but few are chosen. Remember those verse? Many are called, but few are chosen. He speaks to thousands. Everybody in Judea knows that Jesus is walking around healing people and preaching and, and forgiving sins. And yet, how does he preach? In parables. Now Jesus must not have taken that seminar in preaching where they, where they told us that you have to make it accessible. You, know, you, have, to, you have to allow people to understand what you're saying and, and, uh, and you've got to talk their language so they, can, so they can know what you mean. That's not Jesus. He uses these parables that nobody understands except for his disciples, because he explains it to them afterwards. And Jesus says, only to those, only those to whom it is given by God to understand parables will understand the gospel and be my disciples. Amazing. Why put that barrier? Well, because Jesus chooses those who would be saved, those who would be his disciples. And finally, we get to the book of Acts. The church is growing in Acts 13, the apostles are preaching the gospel, and this is where it says, what it says in, in Acts 13:48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing 
and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So who responds to the gospel preaching? Those whom God had appointed from the foundation of the world to believe and to understand and to accept. My last passage from the New Testament, and then we'll move on to the next, next part of it. Thank you for being patient. Thank you for following through on this story. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27. Paul says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of the Lord. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What does Paul say? Those that are Christians are Christians because of God. It wasn't because they somehow distinguished themselves from the rest. They were smarter, they were stronger, they were more powerful. No. They're believers. They've embraced the gospel because God chose them to that destiny. They are saved because of God. And no one can boast in your own efforts if it's all of God. Now, I know you're wrestling with this. That's okay. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to see it as a mystery. But let's establish that Scripture teaches it. That in Scripture, if you're a believer, if you appreciate the Bible, if you agree that the Bible is true, this is what the Bible says. That God chooses some for salvation and not others. That that choice is unconditional and specific. God's election is a biblical fact. Do not reject this doctrine because you cannot make sense of it philosophically. There are scholars who have done really well making sense of it philosophically, and I'm happy to talk to you more about it. How does it fit with human freedom, and human will? We can talk about it. There are good answers to that. But accept this doctrine because the Bible teaches it. And I've tried to show you that it does. There's mystery there, sure. We need to figure out how it fits with everything else, yes. We may wrestle with it, but let's accept that the Bible teaches it. Thomas Chalmers was a Scottish preacher in the 1800s, and, and, and it is said of him that he wrestled with the man's role in salvation that is all of God. He wrestled with the man's role in salvation that is all of God, meaning that he was trying to work out how humanity fits in the salvation. But yet he accepted this salvation is all of God. But God is completely in charge. It is all for his glory. Now let's figure out how we fit into that. Okay, that's the biblical basis. I'm not going to spend as much time on the other two points, I promise. Is there gospel logic to it? Does this doctrine fit with the gospel? Because we all believe the gospel. It's very important to us. And the gospel is that God loves us by grace. That when God blesses you, when God accepts you, when God forgives you, he doesn't do that because there's something in you, that there's some sort of accomplishments or some trait of you that he likes. No, no. He blesses you because he blesses you. 
He loves you because He loves you. That's what we call grace. It's undeserved. It's unmerited. Uh, one uh, scholar defines grace this way. He says, The grace of God is love freely shown toward guilty sinners, contrary to their merit, and indeed in defiance of their demerit. It's contrary to your merit, meaning to anything good you may have done, and it's in defiance of your demerit, any sort of sin that you may have committed. Grace overcomes both, and God loves you by grace. So the question is, do you believe that you are saved completely by grace, which is the gospel? Do you believe what the gospel teaches, that there's nothing in you that made God save you? There's no accomplishments, no quality, no virtue. Nothing at all that made you deserving of God's salvation. That it is all by grace. Do you believe that? Now, some Christians, many maybe, maybe some here, believe that it is not all by grace. Grace helps, but grace doesn't totally save. That's what I mean by that. Many people think that I need to be somewhere for God to give me grace. I need to reach a certain stage, maybe my spirituality, maybe my morality, maybe how I deal with my money or how I treat others, before God would give me grace that will help me to get to the next level. But it sort of starts with me. I've had these conversations with people from the church, people in and out of my church, that say, you know what, can't come right now, can't believe right now because I've got to get my life together. If you say that, that means you believe that grace is helpful to you. But really, it's you that's doing the work of salvation. It's not really God. God is helping you to get your life together and your soul saved. Now, let me kind of turn this question a little bit this way. I'm going to ask you a question. I'd like you to think how you would answer that question. And the way you would answer that question would determine whether you believe it is all by grace, grace saves completely, or you believe grace helps, but still your effort needs to start the process. This is the question. Why are you a Christian, if you are a Christian, why are you a Christian and your neighbor is not a Christian? So think of somebody in your life, maybe a co-worker or, or relative or, or an actual neighbor who's not a believer. Maybe you've had conversations with them, maybe you've tried to explain the gospel to them, but they are not believers. They, they don't believe, they're not Christian. So why is it that you are saved and they are not saved? Well, I think a logical answer would be, and many of you are probably answering the question in your mind like this, you're saying, well, because I accepted the Lord Jesus as my Lord and as my Savior. I had that moment when my faith was expressed and I took him to be my Savior. But my neighbor hasn't done it. So I am a believer and they're not because of this. Let me ask you another question. Why is it that you accepted the Lord Jesus into your heart and your, and your neighbor did not do that? What's the difference? Well, you can say, well, I understood the gospel. I understood that I was a sinner, that I had huge issues that only God can address and that I needed a Savior. And that's why, when I understood that, when I was clear on what the Gospel is, and grace and forgiveness, that's when I made that step. My neighbor doesn't understand. You see, I've explained it to them, but they don't, they don't seem to really get this idea of sin and, and how we need forgiveness. And so they, that's why they haven't accepted Jesus. Okay, valid difference. But why is it that you understood and they don't understand? Why is it that at some point somebody talked to you about the gospel, 
maybe your parents, maybe your friend, maybe your college roommate, and you said, this totally makes sense. Yeah, I'm a sinner. God is a great God. He loves me. He wants to save me. Of course, I'm going to give him my life. Why is it that for you it clicked, and yet you've used the same words, the same ideas for your neighbor, and you've talked to them maybe several times, and they don't get it? Why is that? Well, you may say, well, maybe that's because in my heart I am humble. You know, I came to God, and when the gospel was presented to me, I submitted myself to Jesus. I just said, you know what, I, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to believe. I'm going to be humble. It doesn't matter really what I think, and I'm, I'm just going to humble my heart. And because I'm humble, God gave me understanding of the gospel. Now, I'm using all those things that we commonly talk about in people becoming Christian. And yet, why is it that your neighbor wasn't humble in, in their hearts? Why is it that they couldn't understand because they weren't submitting to the Lord? There are two answers to that, two ways you can go. One, you can say, well, I guess there was something in me. I guess there was something about me, something in my heart or in my mind or in my will that made me understand and accept the gospel, but my neighbor doesn't have it. And no matter how, how much I'm going to explain it to them, they're just not going to get it. So I guess there is something special about me. I guess God looked at me and said, yes, there's a certain traits, certain virtue in them. And so I'm going to give them a little bit of grace to help them and to save them. But my neighbor doesn't have it. Do you see how easy it is to, to say that you are in charge of your salvation? That it is something in you that God likes and that's why he blesses you and he doesn't bless your neighbor. Do you know how easy it is to feel superior to someone else if you're a Christian? Because I'm a Christian. I made that choice and you haven't. I'm a Christian. I understand the Bible and you don't. I understand that I'm a sinner. I am a humble person and you're not. And you feel superior. And you feel judgmental. And you feel like there's something in you that is special. And God honored that special thing about you. That's one way to answer this question, why you are a Christian and somebody else is not. Another way to answer would, would be to say, God, in his sovereign mercy, decided to give me grace and save me. And there is nothing special about me. I am in no way different from my neighbors. They're just the same. They're just like I am. The difference is that God worked through his race in my life, and in their life, he hasn't. Maybe he hasn't yet. Do you see how it gets really practical? This, this understanding of, of election becomes very practical. Now, please don't get defensive if you don't believe in election. Okay? Um, my goal is to convince you today, but if you don't believe, don't get defensive. You cannot believe in the gospel of grace, in the way that I've described it, in the way scripture describes it, and not believe that God unconditionally chooses people to be saved. It is logically impossible. If you believe that it is all by grace, that means that your choice is included in that. That means that whatever disposition you had to believe in the gospel was given to you by God by grace. That means that God, for his glory, chooses you. We don't know why, we don't understand, there's a mystery to it, but God decided to be gracious to you. And that is the gospel. Wrestle with it. Wrestle with your understanding of the gospel. Do you believe grace saves completely? Or do you believe 
grace helps a little bit when you need it. Now, my last point, I want to talk about practical importance of it. We already touched on it a little bit. We'll talk about humility. But let's expand it just a little bit. Here at this church, we believe that there are three areas of life that we want to emphasize and address. There's the area of worship, us relating to God, the area of friendship, us relating to each other within the church, and then there's this area of mission, us relating to people outside of our church. We want to serve them and minister to them for the sake of Christ. Let me take all those three areas and see how this doctrine of election enriches and encourages all three. Worship. If you fully embrace unconditional election, you will be able to worship God in full assurance and confidence. Your worship of God, your prayers to God, your reading of Scripture, your relating to Him will become confident and assured. Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones, a a fairly well-known preacher from from England. He he says, God never does anything half-heartedly. There is never anything uncertain about his activities. Nothing is accidental, haphazard, uncertain, or fortuitous. God has a definite plan and purpose about creation, about men and women, about salvation, about the whole life of this world, about the end of it all, about the ultimate destiny. Everything that God has done and is brought to pass is according to his own eternal plan. And it is fixed, certain, unchangeable, and absolute. Now listen to me with your heart right now. Listen to me with your emotion. Isn't that great for you to know and to be sure that your relationship with God does not depend on your wavering commitment to Him or your uncertain emotions or your half-hearted faith, that it depends on His plan, that it depends on His determining from before the foundation of the world that He would love you forever. Don't you feel something when I say that? Don't you feel like you want to worship Him because He loved you so much? You know how many songs there are about eternal love? Think of any song by Peter Cetera or uh, Ario Speedwagon. Speedball here, but any song from the 80s will do. This eternal love that before I met you, I knew you. Before, you know, as long as we're the fishes in the ocean. Uh, I don't remember that song right now. Okay, I'm going to move Sometimes I think I remember songs that I don't. But, um, but this idea that God from eternity past chose you and committed to love you and said, before you were around, I knew you. I know exactly who you are and I want a relationship with you. Doesn't it make your heart sing? Doesn't it make you be happy that God is like that and you can worship Him and be with Him and there's no barrier to that, there's no uncertainty to that, that God will never leave you because it was His decision. So what are you going to mess up? That doesn't change God's plan. So what? Your faith isn't going to be as strong as you hope. That doesn't, your, your, your relationship with Christ does not rest on that. It rests on God's eternal election. Martin Lloyd-Jones again, he says, Realize that if you are a child of God, you're a believer, you're a Christian, it is because God has determined it. And what He has determined about you is certain and safe and sure. Nothing and no one can ever take you out of His hands or make Him forego His purpose in respect to you. The doctrine of eternal degrees of God before the foundation of the world, He knew me. He knew you. 
and our names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the world was ever made, before you or I or anybody else ever came into it. Let us bow before His majesty. If you believe this, you believe that God is so gracious and so loving that this electing love is yours, you will worship Him. And you will worship Him freely. And there will be no guilt. There will be no fear. There will be no uncertainty. There will be confidence before God. Now secondly, it affects your friendship, the way you relate to others, specifically in the church, but other believers. When, when Paul says that in verse uh, 4, he says that, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us. This, this clause in love, in your Bibles and in mine too, it's, it's, it's related to verse 5. It says that in love he predestined you. That's how it's broken up. Now remember, it's all the same sentence in Greek, and this, these are all interpretive decisions that we're saying this phrase should belong to this verse. But it's unclear. It could also belong that he predestined you to be holy in love, to be blameless in love. Meaning what? That he predestined you to love others in, in, within his people. It's very ambiguous. Nobody knows where to put it. Is it predestining in love or is it you loving others? Now, I like the ambiguity. I think it's purposeful. Because yes, he predestined you in love. The reason God chose you is because he loved you. And yes, he predestined you to love others. Jesus says in, in, in John 13, do you remember Jesus says, they will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. So how do you know you are elect? How do you know God blessed you and he, he chose you? It's, it's because you love others. It's because in holiness, you commit to a community and you love them. Love them how? The way God loved you. Unconditionally, specifically, choosing people to love. Reaching out to them, helping them, caring for them, even if they don't respond. That's amazing. To know that you have that purpose. That God chose you to be that kind of a person. To be loving to others. Now lastly, we look quickly and then we'll be taking communion. It affects our mission. The way you, you serve others. If you believe that there's no difference between you and any other unbeliever. That the difference is God's grace. There's nothing in you. Then how can you feel superior to anyone? How can you feel proud about your accomplishments, about being a Christian? How can you? Okay. What if it all depends on God's free mercy, on God's grace? Don't you think you will be humble in serving others? Don't you think you will... Not be judgmental, as long as you remember this. What do you have to offer? Nothing but God's grace. Nothing but God's grace that was given to you, you're extending it to others. Yes, I disagree with a bunch of people around me, but if I know that I've been elected by God to serve them, and the reason I've been elected by God is because He loves me because of who He is and not because of who I am, I will come humbly to someone else and I will serve them, and I'll be missional in my neighborhood and my city, and I will love people that are very different from me, that I disagree with, because they too might be chosen by God. There may be elect among them, and I'm going to serve them and see God's purposes stand. There's tremendous motivation for evangelism in this doctrine. Now some people would say, you know, 
you Calvinists, if you believe in this doctrine of election, then you're not going to tell other people about Jesus. If everybody's elect, or whoever's elect is elect, why tell anybody? Well, it's interesting that the missions movement in the history of the church was fueled by the Calvinists, by those who believe in the election of God. It's amazing. William Carey and uh, other early missionaries from England, they were Calvinists. They believed that there are elect of God in China and in India and they need to hear the gospel. And they were tremendously motivated to go to the ends of the earth. And so for you today, you should be tremendously motivated to share the gospel with others because God is giving grace to them too. But you should also be rid of all anxiety because it doesn't depend on you. So when you minister to others, when you serve them, when you speak the gospel to them, relax. It's all right. Sure, you're going to say some stupid stuff. Sure, you're going to make a poor case for the gospel. Sure, you're not going to look your best at that meeting. That's okay. Because those who are elect will be saved by God. And he will use you, and he will use others, but he will always get his purposes fulfilled. Tremendous motivation, tremendous freedom from anxiety. Well, I'm done. This is a little bit of a longer sermon than usual. I had a lot of stuff to get through. This is my encouragement to you. If this is totally new to you, you've never heard people talk about God's election, it doesn't make any sense to you, let me encourage you to see it in terms of God's love, to see it in terms of Him talking to you right now, reaching out to you by grace, and respond to that. If you're wrestling with this issue, wrestle. Don't ignore it. Wrestle with it. I'm happy to talk to you. There's other people in the church who are knowledgeable who can talk to you about this. So talk to me. Send me emails. I'd be happy to talk about it. But wrestle with it, because if you get it, it enriches your Christian life. It changes your understanding of the gospel for the better. It, it makes your life with Christ deeper, your mission stronger, and your friendship more loving. So that's my pitch for that.